It was the dawn of the third age of podcasting, 12 years after the B5 premiere. The Babylon podcast was a dream given form. Its goal, to discuss Babylon 5 episodes, arcs, and implications, to interview the cast and crew about their experiences and memories. It's a home away from home for fanboys, geek girls, and lurkers. It can be a silly place, but it's our last best hope for B5 fans. This is the podcast about the story of the last of the Babylon stations. The year is 2006. The name of this show is the Babylon Podcast. And welcome back to another Babylon Podcast. My name is Summer Brooks. I'm Tim Callender. Hey, it's Jeffrey Willard here. And once again, Jeffrey has decided not to tell us who we're calling. <laughs> it's called a surprise. Do, do we at least start getting hints? Um, that's a waste of time. Okay. I have to try. <laughs> Does he or she have uh, two arms and two legs? Uh, on this show, I wouldn't bet on that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, dial the number already. Okay. <laughs> if you go to Zahatun, you will die. If you go to www.babylonpodcast.com, you will find the only podcast dedicated to Babylon 5. You will hear in-depth commentary, insightful interviews, and unexpected surprises. The Babylon Podcast, our last best hope for B5 fans. Hello? Did we lose him? I think we're dialing. Thank you for calling Earthbound Entertainment. This is Jeffrey. I am sorry that I've missed your call. I'm probably on the other line. Hang up with Jeff. <laughs> Great. Yes. Hello. <coughs> Excuse me. Hi. Hello. I think we I'm have, here. We have mostly everybody. Mostly everybody. <laughs> yeah, Jeff dropped Hello? out okay. again. Now, who's mostly everybody? Uh, myself, Summer Brooks, and our other host, <laughs> Tim Callender. Okay. And where's Jeffrey? We tried calling Jeffrey back, and we got voicemail, so I don't... Know. <laughs> <laughs> That's what she heard. Okay. Well, you know those war lines. They just come and go as they please. Yes, they do. <laughs> well, Bill thinks he's the only cosh. <laughs> <laughs> so it is a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful, wonderful to have you on the show today. Um, well, thank you. <laughs> I, I can't tell you. I, I don't think I can explain in words how excited I am to actually be talking to you. You're... Literally, your performance on the show blew me away completely. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. It seems so long ago to me now. My gosh, it's almost uh, well, it was 10 years. Um, well, it's 12 years now, right? Since 94, <laughs> when I started it. Yeah. <sighs> Time has flown. Mm -hmm. um, but does that mean if we ask you about scene 47 in episode 353, you're going to give us a little light to move out of our parents' basement? You, you're out of luck there. <laughs> yeah. Hello? Did we lose him? 
Oh, crap. Uh, Bruce? Hello? Oh, man. Okay. Several minutes later, after massive technical failures, we finally get Bruce Boxleitner back on the phone. Hello? Hey. Hey, it's Jeffrey. No kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. Someone's lying. <laughs> you know, no, just because really? you, you have technology doesn't mean you should use it, right? That's right. Fear technology. It's the devil's work. Uh, I'm beginning uh, to agree with you. Are we all here? Yes. Yes. Everyone's here. Yes. What was I saying? Uh, <laughs> Thank you so very much for your patience. All right. Don't worry about it. I, hmm. I'm with Summer. I, I think that your performance, amongst other great performances, uh, really made that show come alive. And, and one of the things that I noticed going back and watching, especially at the beginning of the second year where John Sheridan first shows up, is that he seems to be almost a fully formed character. Not to say that there aren't changes coming, because that's obvious, but <laughs> especially the scene in Points of Departure, where he's telling Ivanova about how he took out the Black Star and, you know, recounts the, the tale of, of the strategy, and then he pauses and he goes, it was our only victory in the entire war, and I'm not going to apologize to it with such a force. You know, that, that made me think that, you know, had you sat down and, and fleshed out the history of this character going in? Um, probably at the time I thought I hadn't enough. <laughs> <laughs> But um, it's hard to explain, to tell you the truth. Um, I only had so much uh, reference, uh, you know, uh, background on this guy. The rest was up to me and um, what I could bring to him. And uh, I believe this guy was, uh, you know, when we first met him, was very much a straight shooter. You know, he was very much um, what he said he meant, you know. And um, that's the way I, I played that, that particular scene. I, I don't recall a lot of it anymore, but um, I believe when I blurted that out, he meant it. There was no nonsense. That, that side of John Sheridan, there was no nonsense. And uh, as we saw in the subsequent years afterwards, and then the many episodes in which we went back to the uh, Battle of the Line um, in the Mimbari War, uh, you saw that he was right. You saw, especially the, the movie we made uh, in the beginning. Do you remember that one? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. So we, I tried to play him. <laughs> tried to play him a little more younger. Uh, <laughs> he was uh, headstrong, but felt he was right, and he wasn't afraid to act on that. You know, he didn't question a lot. That was a trait I always thought. Uh, when, he, when he made a decision, he stepped through the portal. You know, I mean, he went with it. And I think um, I, what I tried to show in that, too, is that, and this wasn't anything that, uh, I, you know, I had to follow what was written, but um, uh, and maybe Joe saw that, too. Maybe that's what he wanted. I don't think we ever discussed that part of it. It just was an instinctive thing. Um, I'm not that way. I mean, I question a lot of my decisions and, <laughs> and you know, I've you know, made mistakes on certain decisions in my life. But at that time, I don't think he, he felt very justified in what he did. And then I think when we did the, in the beginning, uh, you, you saw that. You saw his trepidation about making that decision and then, then making it and 
in following through, and ultimately he was successful. So I don't know if I've answered that, but uh, um, thank you for picking that one out. Uh, <laughs> I can't tell you. I mean, Jeffrey, uh, Jeff is giggling there because how many scenes I did in hallways with him dressed <laughs> as a lampshade. Um, <laughs> and you know what? I have to say this, and Jeffrey, have you uh, you've outed yourself here that you were underneath all that cosh stuff, right? Yeah. I'm I'm out yeah. now. It's okay. <laughs> it's out. Okay. And I have to tell you, folks, that uh, Jeff knew the scenes. He knew the script, and um, always did. I, you know, he did the scenes with me, even though we had our right card writer, whatever his name was, uh, doing this voiceover work. Right, Jeff? Yes, sir. I don't think I'm saying anything wrong there. Am I? <laughs> um, no, not at all. No, our no, right Chamberlain. Our right Chamberlain. That's right. Who am I thinking? Somebody else. Um, anyway, um, but Jeff did every one of those scenes with me. He always did the dialogue, always acted. He was acting right through that lampshade. <laughs> so was it difficult to play off of a character wearing a lampshade? Um, well, because, because, he was, because he was acting back, no. You know, I was talking to a being there. You know, and yes, it was odd at, uh, a little bit at first, but... Uh, what wasn't on that show when you stared into red beady eyes or someone who had a nose for a face and that was it. Um, you know, we had so many kinds of characters, so many kinds of, <coughs> excuse me, alien characters <coughs> that uh, I got used to it pretty quickly. So, but Jeff was wonderful in doing that and he was always a great help and always, uh, you know, a good actor. Was uh, talking to a lampshade, did that make it harder to recover from flubbed lines or easier? No, we just giggled a lot, I think. Uh, if I flubbed my line, I mean. <laughs> I don't think we did a lot of flubbing. Yeah, I don't think Bruce ever really flubbed the line ever, once, ever. Me? Come on. Once or twice. Maybe it was not with you, but uh, there, I mean. No, there's a great scene yeah, in the great, bloopers. There's a great scene in the bloopers yeah, where you're calling yourself Sinclair while talking to Kosh, and everybody's just cracking up. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> How that came out of my mouth, I have no idea. Um, it shocks me more than anyone else in the room. But uh, Sinclair, I'm mean, Sinclair here. And I went, what? Oh, my God. Anyway. Bruce, how, how was it to take over from uh, Michael Hare as commander of the station? You know, I didn't really have time to think about it. I had to jump in to a group of people, you know, amongst a group of people that, were, you know, with both. I had to start running right from the get-go. Um, and uh, very thankfully, this was a very warm group of actors, um, very, you know, generous. And everybody helped me get up to speed right away. And, uh, you know, I just had Joe to ask. I mean, that was, it was very convenient because he was there you know, in his office right there at the lot. And um, so, I, you know, it was, it was exhilarating. It, it was absolutely exhilarating. I mean, it's some of the best time I've had in my life. Um, I want to add that um, uh, this, this past weekend, uh, Bruce and I and some of our uh, friends got together um, and, and shared memories like we do when we get together. We always have such a great time. Here we are years later, and we, we still just so thoroughly enjoy each other's company and, and feel so warm and pick up right where we left off. And yeah. I think both, and I, both Bruce and I and the others will agree that we just need to quit getting together for that particular reason. 
And I wanted to express again to you, Bruce, just how wonderfully articulate and kind you were uh, in your words about Andreas. And uh, I'm grateful no. for that, and I'm grateful for your friend. I think, Jeffrey, we, uh, I wasn't alone. I think we all expressed our, uh, our love for the man, um, you know, our sadness and his passing. Um, still a bit of a shock and um, you know I think he was one of the finest actors that ever walked the stage so um, you know he was one of our finest certainly and uh, what a great character Jakar was and I and I include Andreas and Jakar they were one and the same mm-hmm. you know how comfortable he was in that um, in that character and how much he brought to that character so um do, do you have a do you have a favorite moment either on screen or off screen with uh, Andreas and Jakar? Well, I, I, we have a wonderful little picture here at home of him holding my. I think he was what about five months old. My son Michael was five months old, and we have a picture of um, Jakar holding him, and he's crying. And it wasn't because he was afraid of Andreas as Jakar, that he was hungry, and he wanted, you know, his, his mommy who <laughs> <laughs> was there, and uh, but he loved, I mean, uh, yeah, I remember um, uh, Andreas sort of cooing to him and talking to him and saying hello, and, and Mikey was like, you know, this little infant was totally fascinated with him. And then it hit the moment, and uh, he said, oops, I'm hungry, wah, you know, <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Andreas had thought he'd scared him, but it, it was not the case. No, <laughs> you know, I used to, um, I was saying the other night to the, every once in a while I would, uh, I used to love the scenes with Peter and Andreas off off stage and, and in, in their scenes. And oftentimes um, when I knew they were working, I was out in my dressing room or something waiting for when I would come on next, uh, I would creep in and sit and watch them. They were so wonderful together they bounced off of each other so well you know um certainly they had the wonderful material of those two characters but the two actors had such a great rapport and it was always fun to watch i i considered them the finest ones on the show right from the right everybody was good but i i particularly enjoyed watching them and also enjoyed being uh, in a scene with them and i remember uh, there's a couple pictures early on from the First, my first season, which was the second, in which um, I was caught in a scene where they were arguing with each other, and I just said, I have got to hold up. These two guys are going to chew the scenery all around. <laughs> they were, you know, you had to you had to be up on, on everything and keep your eyes and ears open when they were acting around you, or you would have been gone, you know. Absolutely no one would have seen you there, because that's how good they were and how entertaining and... Um, so larger than life. Um, Andreas's passing has made uh, made us all take stock. I think uh, um, Richard Biggs a couple of years ago, which was a, another huge shocker, and then Tim Choate yeah. uh, having an unfortunate accident, and that marvelous character that he played as Zothras, mm-hmm. Zothras's, and um, uh, it just makes you you so appreciate the memories of the of the performers because there they are, you know, and it was a a great show to be immortalized in, you know. Um, 
and we only hope, uh, like Jeff said, let's get together, guys, let's get together more often uh, and not have to have this situation bring us together as it has. But everybody's scattered up about so. Anyway, I mean, um, we're all over the place now, so it's hard to do. Bruce, um, one of the other things that that's remarkable to watch um, is is your performances with Mira Furlan as Delenn, the relationship that develops between them, of course, you know, budding into the romance and the marriage and the partnership, and mm-hmm. both characters being uh, driven by a greater purpose, if you will. Mm-hmm. But I love that about it. Was, it. Yeah. yeah, but it was so natural. Talk about that, that kind of rapport that you had with her. How did, how did that come about, and how did that work? I just think it was there. Um, um, I didn't know it was going to happen. I don't think she did either. Only, there was only one person who did, and he wrote it um, at the time, you know. Um, but I think it was Marvel. There was a certain grandeur to the... the re- you could see the relationship happening. Like you said, a greater purpose was, was out there in, the, in their future. And... Uh, I still dare anyone to top uh, the um, Sleeping in the Light episode, I believe it was. Oh. Uh, it was really gut-wrenching to do that. Last, uh, Ironically, our last episode of the fourth season, because we didn't know we were coming back in the fifth season, and they saved that one. That is the episode, right? Am mm-hmm. I right? Yes, yes it is. You're right. Right. Hey, I got it right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I don't uh, think you could get anything wrong with a heartbreaker like that one. <laughs> no, that was a tough one. It was a tough one on many levels, and I thought it brought, uh, you, know, yeah, you know, Mira is just such a, oh, such a terrific actress. I enjoy so much seeing her on Lost when she's on there now. She's, you know, I was telling her the other night that, uh, to you know, she's not on a lot, but when she is, she immediately grabs your attention. That's almost like better than being in every episode, you know. It's it's amazing, and she's so strong, so charismatic, and um, you know. And she had a tough thing as Delenn. She had to wear that uh, that makeup, and I know it was some, sometimes it was very trying for her because she's she's a you know, attractive woman. She wanted to look herself in many ways, but she transcended all that, and she was marvelous at it. Um, she was just so open, so, you know, she let her heart out, you know, in anguish or in joy, and uh, then she had a certain royalty to her, which all of these things, um, I think, uh, you know, made our relationship uh, what it was, um, and we always got along. This, uh, this woman and I never had a crossword with each other, or and don't to this day. We may have had, you know, almost some disagreements on things, but we, we always... Um, found a way to uh, mediate and and uh, and do it but um you know I love that last that last episode where she's out there looking at the sunset mm-hmm. and then my ghost or my well whomever I was there you know after I was gone I just that still brings me to tears yeah it does yeah beautifully uh, well done but well written and well conceived um uh, episode and it was tough for all of us. I have to tell you, Jeff. Do you remember this? Um, we had all the people from like the office. We were shooting some of those scenes. It looked like, for all intents and purposes, maybe it. And everybody was in tears. If you'd have turned that camera around on the, <laughs> the rest of the cast and crew, everybody else was in tears. 
Uh, we had people sitting under the cameras, uh, some of the, the girls up from the offices and uh, from other various departments, props and, you know, uh, art decorators and stuff, uh, because it was a kind of a very special moment. So um, it wasn't hard to get emotional there. So how difficult was it then to turn around? You know, you filmed this extremely emotional episode. It's goodbye for everyone, not only in mm-hmm. terms of the characters, but you think for the series. And then you get the call from TNT and say, hey, we're going to let you finish out. You get you one, one more year. How difficult was it? Plus, to, uh, to plus a couple of movies, <laughs> two-hour movies. Right. Oh, it was wonderful. It was an absolute uh, saved, uh, saved by the cavalry at the end of the reel. You know, I mean... Um, <laughs> Uh, it was because then I, I think what we were more particularly sad about was that um, even though I had been on it four seasons, I took this thing on as sort of a, a mission, uh, as well as everybody else, and we wanted to complete Joe's saga, and that was the heartbreak of it. Is we thought we were, we, you know, we were almost there, you know, and now we get cut off. But uh, I think everybody was elated, uh, very very happy with it. Um, I was, I was overjoyed. I could, I could still be doing the show. Um, <laughs> if it had been a 10 year saga, I'd, I'd still be doing it. Um, and, uh, and enjoying every bit of it. Um, uh, that was the great thing about that character is that I got to play everything from A to Z, you know, and, um, very few parts do you get like that. Yeah. Believe me. Uh, I haven't had, I haven't had this kind of material or that kind of material to do since. So. Uh, on screen, your uh, relationship with Garibaldi goes from contentious <laughs> to friendly, back to contentious. Uh, what was it like working uh, with Jerry that closely? <laughs> That's Jerry Doyle and I. <laughs> <laughs> um, that relationship continues. Anybody that knows Jerry knows that's your relationship with him. It can be contentious. It can be a hell of a good time, and then uh, back to contentious again. Uh, now, Jerry and I, uh, we got very close uh, through most of the very end. Um, and I still, uh, even though he lives in Las Vegas now, I uh, we talk regularly at least once a week or once uh, once or twice every couple of weeks. Um, <clears throat> he's the one who told me, in fact... Um, had given me the news uh, last week when uh, Andreas had passed away. Um, Jerry, uh, I think, was a, is a terrific actor. Um, I think the character of Garibaldi, another fascinating, fascinating character. And Jerry brought all... Jerry's a very complex guy. And he brought all of those things to, um, to uh, Garibaldi. Uh, the tough guy, the... Uh, Absolutely sentimental slob, uh, <laughs> um, you know the uh, the wiseacre, the wisecracker, um, uh, the really intensely uh, passionate guy. All those various levels, and um, and they're all there with Jerry. I mean, that was some spot-on casting if I ever saw it. Um, and uh, I still tell him, you know. <laughs> He's a no good PC, you know what? But no, I mean, <laughs> but I never did get to hit him back. That's the that's the ongoing thing we have. Oh man, need, need to clip him right back in the jaw. You know, he's, he he um, remember in front of the whole Zocalo, he just yeah, he decked you. He he decked me right to the floor. But being the gentleman that I am, I let it go. And then he had me have beaten to death, you know, on Mars. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, that was a, I love that part of it. That was, 
you know, I, I never read far ahead. I don't know that Jerry did either. Everyone's, well, but then he'd get uh, worried. Uh, he'd get worried that, uh, you know, oh, my God, am I cut out of this episode? Yeah, he, 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 uh, Jerry is a great conspiracy theorist, too. That was Garibaldi as well, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I was the master of conspiracies, but he was the theorist. And... Um, <laughs> I'm right, Jeffrey. You know I'm right. Um, <laughs> That's what's making me laugh. You guys, <laughs> you know. And uh, oh god, it's a, I miss so much about that show. <laughs> Those guys could make up a conspiracy about the potato oh. salad at Kraft Service. Oh, I'm telling you, Kraft Service. We were either being, you know, microchips were in the food. I, you know, all kinds. <laughs> you know, there was something in the um, water there, kids. That's right. <laughs> Drinking the Kool Aid, yeah. you know. Um, <laughs> um, well, uh, Bruce, how, did you, how did you get the part of uh, Captain Sheridan? What was the process to get you on the show? Well, you know, I had worked with Doug Netter and John Copeland um, back in 1979, 80, somewhere around there on a Western, and um, uh, with Sam Elliott. So, I, you know, I had that was the last time I had seen them. Now, I had seen maybe, uh, I happened to catch a Babylon 5 episode early on, its first season, and I thought it was, uh, what I liked about it, it was a darker, um, it wasn't Star Trek, and I liked it, I thought this was interesting, but I didn't, I, I rarely watched any series at that time uh, for, for, for long, so I only caught it once or twice. Then um, I got a call from my agent saying that um, the show Babylon 5, they were looking for someone, would I be interested? And I thought, well, another cast member, would I be interested? And then um, uh, Doug Netter's office, and we, we reminisced about the last time we saw him, and he said, I'd like to send you over some scripts, and what do you think? Now, I'm not so sure that I was the only one. I'm sure Warner Brothers was looking uh, at a few people. They were looking at which you have to do, by the way, because if somebody mm-hmm. turns it down, you've got to obviously have a, a plan B. And I don't know where I was in that chain, but um, as soon as I read the first scripts, I was thrilled with it. Oh, I hadn't. The last series I had done was uh, The Scarecrow of Mrs. King. So I, um, I love series work. And, um, you know, I, uh, this thing I thought, oh, I could live this. This is good. This is good. I could get up and go do this every day. I, so I was, the material just grabbed me. And, uh, and then I also, they sent me some episodes just to get an idea. And then I got a call from Doug. I said, uh, I called my agent and said, yes, I'm very interested. And uh, then I got a call. I was invited out to uh, the sound stages and got, uh, I met Doug and John again. And we walked around the, uh, the sets. And I said, well, that just um, sold me right there. I said, yeah, absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. When do we begin? And we did. I thought you uh, got the part because Kosh wasn't available. <laughs> well, I, Jeffrey, I hate to hurt your feelings here, but I was really, um, I was under consideration for Kosh in the first place. <laughs> and um, they picked you later. Um, <laughs> reflecting on your work in the first season, I, I, didn't, I didn't want to mention this, but uh, they were really going to replace Kosh first. Um, but then it didn't happen. Mm. You know, I could hey, fit if in that wardrobe. I fit in the uniform, and I said, yeah, you know, keep him in that. No. <laughs> I think Jeffrey's also got a face made to play Kosh. Oh, wow, oh. Jeff. Uh, 
They thought I was too tall for Kosh. They really did. They thought I was going to be too tall. But um, no, we've had. Anyway, to, but you know what? It was a decision. I am so glad. Um, you know, it was hardly a decision. I mean, first, as soon as I start to read the, the first, they sent me four scripts, and I, uh, I went, "Oh yeah, oh yeah." So it was just it answered everything because also it was here. Uh, let me also bring that in. It was being shot here in Los Angeles. Uh, I had been almost a citizen of Canada for so long doing uh, movies of the week and stuff like that after Scarecrow and Mrs. King, um, which were much more prevalent than they are today. And uh, and to do a series, to be home. I was also uh, dating this young woman named Melissa Gilbert. Mm-hmm. And I thought, this is just answering everything for me. And also that it was on already, you know. Uh, that's kind of... Um, the fear when you start a TV series that, that, you know, six episodes and you didn't make it and you're off the air. This had already been on, and uh, obviously it had, you know, some legs. So um, whatever I could do uh, to help out, I, I did. Mm-hmm. So. Now, we've had, we've had uh, previous guests tell us what kind of goodies they left with after the show wrapped. Did, uh, did you take um, any, uh, any trinkets? Uh, yeah, and exactly, they were trinkets. I have um, most of the things that were on my shelves and on my desk in my main office on the on the space station. Um, I have the original Star Fury model that was on there. Oh, nice. My desk, um, which is still beautiful. And all the plaques with John Sheridan, Commander, Lieutenant Commander, and all the little plaques in the background. You know, we had all those things were all... Uh, um, very authentic, um, even though no one ever got that close up to see them. But there was, a, you know, whole, uh, there were documents on there, little plaques on the walls and things like that. I got to go take those. Um, I have a Citizen Jakar statue, which I treasure. Mm-hmm. I was, remember when that was a Citizen yeah. Jakar? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He had all these statuettes. Right. I grabbed one of those. Um, I didn't get any of the uniform. It was okay. I'd worn them enough. <laughs> I was, I was, uh, it was okay to say goodbye to those. Um, what else did I get? Mostly, it was mostly the stuff that was probably going to be tossed out. And I managed to sweep my desk off into a bag and a bunch of stuff as I was heading out the door. Um, I remember the last day uh, I was on a call to arms and Jerry and I stood there and, uh, they got us, a, the crew, they were going on with crusade and this was the episode we were going to hand over the Excalibur to them and mm-hmm. onward. And uh, it was another sad day. Um, that was a tough one. And they gave us a little cake. And Jerry and I walked out the door, turned around and waved. And that was it. It was all over. We were unemployed. <laughs> <laughs> so We could have been a spinoff in ourselves if somebody would have done <laughs> So, uh, Bruce, what what current projects uh, are you working on now or coming up in the future? I have a um, anyway, I have a Hallmark Mystery Woman coming out on March 18th uh, episode. It's a two-hour episode on the Hallmark Channel. Kelly Martin's um, mm-hmm. show. And I have another one called Double Cross coming out. I think it's probably in Lifetime. That's where I seem to thank God for the Hallmark and Lifetime channels <laughs> and Sci-Fi Channel every once in a while. They, I did this goofy thing called um, Snakehead Terror. Snakehead Terror. Oh, my goodness, yes. Oh, my God, they run that thing. 
I thought, no one's going to see this. This is a quick paycheck. They're running it all the time. Saturday night, Creature Features. Anyway, um, that's the only thing that's going on now. Now we have pilot season. We're in the middle of right now. and um, Awaiting... Um, if I can uh, get up for one. Is uh, back to work like every actor? Is huh? Young Blade still running? No. Oh, I think it might be still running. That was last year. Was, was it last year? Yeah, I, but I think it's still running on. It's not called the I Network, or mm-hmm. I Channel, because I actually didn't see it until this year. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, that uh, that was a little disappointing. I wasn't necessarily disappointed for Michael Ironside or myself. I had a ball doing it. I was more disappointed for the uh, younger members because this was a, a big break for them. Um, and I thought it had a, cl- a clever aspect to it. Uh, I don't think it necessarily panned out right, but that's okay, too. You know, you try. You don't always win. You can't always find the Babylon 5 out there, folks. It's it's not easy. Um, and my favorite shows uh, right now are uh, to watch and television. I watch Lost and I watch 24. Those are my favorite type of shows. And they have, you know, which are very Babylon 5-like. I was just about to say that. <laughs> Thank you for uh, picking up on that. I guess yeah. it's, uh, I'm very drawn to that. I love that um, continuing story, you know, and you don't know where it's going to go next. Um, and that's what was the thrill of doing Babylon 5. Well, Bruce, we really, really, really appreciate your time tonight. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay, thank you very much. Thank it's you. It's good to reminisce about it. I, I, I'm glad there's still people that um, remember it and enjoy it. I mean, um, sometimes I feel like it's been forgotten. No. Um, I was oh, no. with Jeff, Jeff and I were talking the other night about sort of the, uh, other than uh, Stargate and Battlestar Galactica, there's kind of a, a drought of uh, sci-fi type television, except for I guess it's, uh, I, I don't I have not really gotten into Surface and who's the other one that's on um, Invasion. Invasion. It's just not the same as the cult TV shows we were doing, you know. <laughs> oh God. Well, the, well I think part yeah. of that is that you're not, you know, those shows aren't developing whole universes in which you could get yourself lost exactly. and wrapped up in. Exactly. Exactly. It's too, like, now, here, yeah. you know. But um, anyway, I, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much. And uh, I hope that we uh, get a chance. We'll, we'll get you back here, and we'll, uh, we'll do some more. Okay. I'll be there for you. All right. All right. Excellent, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Hello. Welcome to Dragon Sushi, Dakota. Um, yeah, I'd like two tuna rolls and two California rolls and can I get a slice of sci-fi? Oh, what is slice of sci-fi? What is slice of sci-fi? Why, it's an award-winning podcast. That's what slice of sci-fi is. Oh, we know I have slice of sci-fi. What do you mean you don't have slice of sci-fi? We know I have Yuko, but I need my slice of sci-fi. I give you a slice of sci-fi. Whoa. Slice of Sci-Fi can only be found at www.sliceofsci-fi.com. Wow. I don't think I could ever get tired of talking to him or listening to him talk. 
<laughs> I don't think so either. I, I, I have to admit that I got all weak-kneed and squishy inside when we found out who was on the other end of the line there. Yeah, I was already there. I just want to also let you know that uh, he looks great. Uh, I mean, he just he, he's he just is fit and he looks terrific. He's really, um, you know, I mean, he is aging gracefully. He really looks terrific, and um, his 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 persona is everything that it has ever been. He's just uh, he, he's quite a guy and a great friend. Awesome. Does he still have the beard? Uh, no, not right now. No, he's looking very uh, season two right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, thank you, Jeffrey, for setting that up. I'm I can't tell you how how giddy girl geek that made me. Well, I'm, <laughs> me I'm too. glad you guys uh, are are all geeking on it. It's uh, you know, I mean, he's just another integral part of the whole thing uh, of the whole process, and uh, I have uh, a long, long list of uh, cast and crew members who are standing in the wings waiting to do uh, these shows with us. And uh, I think by the time that we amass a decent inventory of shows here, that um, the fans are really going to have a whole new insight on um, what it was like to be a part of that show. Mm. I think I think the, the reaction from me is more because of how much the show meant to me. I was like... I still say, you know, that show still ranks very, very high on my personal category list. And I still go, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm talking to this person. I know they're just a person, but still. Well, they brought to life, you know, such amazing characters and and not to denigrate the people behind the scenes because they were very much an integral part of the magic. Um, But when Bruce appeared on the show, I really think, that's when Babylon Five took off, and um, I'm I'm with you, Summer. Just to be able to talk to him a little bit and hear his stories, and and just to have the opportunity to say, "Hey, thanks for what you did." That, that's just a, a wonderful treat. It's a big show. It's a really big show. This is the best podcast on the net these days. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's definitely the most fun, or all maybe second most. Yes. Fun. Well, there's not as much beer involved as you would have in a winging of that Beer and Babylon 5 together. Uh, no, I'm not. So where are you in your series talk now? We are at Soul Hunter. I don't know what episode production number that is. Uh, Summer, can you translate for Jeffrey? Um, it might be one of two. Actually, I think it was actually the original production number is different from its broadcast number, but it was the second episode of the first season. Yeah, it was definitely early on, you bet. But for, for me, when you say Soul Hunter, I don't think of the season one show. I, I immediately go to Martin Sheen. Oh, the, the movie. <laughs> really? Yeah, The River of Souls. Yeah, River of Souls, exactly. And I suppose it's because it's fresher in my mind and there's quite a bit of cobwebs and decay that's happening in between my ears, but um, that, that uh, it's, it's funny that I, I almost forgot there was a whole, you know, that the Soul Hunter had been set up early on in the arc. Well, there's also no Vorlon in Soul Hunter, so since, you know, there's no Kosh, I can't see why you'd have a vested interest. No Vorlon in Soul Hunter? <laughs> no okay, Vorlon so what other in episode Hunter. do you want to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> there's something else more important? <laughs> How come we're not talking about my spin-off series, Third Kosh from the Sun? 
So yeah, did, everybody did, loves cars. Everybody loves cars. So did those actually make it to the pilot stages? <laughs> hmm. Hmm. Just, uh, caution the city. That would have worked out good, too. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh. Oshwing. All of these. Uh, how about K-O-S-H Blue? There you go. Now you're thinking. That's good to see any yeah. one of these. In fact, there, we could almost do Kosh TV. We could just do a Kosh network, mm -hmm. all Kosh all the time. Hey, I've got one. I like that. CSI Vorlon. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> it all works. <sighs> I might have to get my own. We could just do a whole uh, fan fiction <laughs> series of, of other, you know, we could do a whole other podcast series off of this. Oh, goodness. <laughs> I'm... We could have a, a whole little universe of Kosh Entertainment, the Kosh Entertainment Network. I have scary visual exactly. images right now of uh, of Vorlon CSI techs combing, yeah. combing over galactic crime scenes. And I think we could expand uh, beyond just television. We can get into uh, all kinds of merchandise. I mean, I can see kids walking down the street with wires coming out of their ears plugged into their eye kosh. <laughs> Work with me, kids. Work with me. Here. This is good stuff. <sighs> I see a movie on the horizon, Verlon Impossible 4. Ah, there you go. And then, and then, of course, you have to have the politically correct, you know, broke Kosh Mountain, you know, that kind of whole twisted, <laughs> you know. Right. Uh, yeah. You've got Kosh and Ulkesh <laughs> traveling through the backwaters. Oh. Um, I like it. Stop I like me. it a lot. Yeah. <clears throat> Smokey and the Vorlon. We could do a rematch. Oh, good, good, good. That's a great one, too. Yeah. <laughs> can go retro and uh, do my three cautions. I like that. That would have been... Yeah. Would have been, exactly. I dream of cosh. Uh-huh. Oh, no. uh -huh. <laughs> okay, kids. I think we took that yeah, far enough. Well. So let's revisit it from time to time. <laughs> I'll <sighs> uh, we'll come back to it. I'm sure we'll have opportunity. Well, let's uh, let's talk about this uh, rather insignificant episode, Soul Hunter. <laughs> now, <laughs> uh, um, for those who who may need a little refreshing, like Jeffrey, um, Soul Hunter starts off with a mysterious and battered spaceship coming through the jump gate. Uh, Sinclair brings the alien ship aboard the station, and the pilot is taken to the ISO lab. Um, on his way down, uh, Sinclair runs into Delenn, who comes along with him, and then once she lays eyes upon the pilot, uh, she tries to grab Garibaldi's PPG and blow him away. Uh, upon later explanation, she reveals that the pilot is a soul hunter, a being who is drawn to the deaths of great and important individuals so that he might preserve their souls. This soul hunter eventually escapes from the isolab and captures Delenn so that he might capture her soul. The only hitch, of course, is that Delenn isn't dead yet. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> hey, that was almost good Christopher Frankie music there. <laughs> so, Summer, mm -hmm. what's, what was your initial take on Soul Hunter when you first saw it, and what is your take on it, seeing it again? Mm. It was interesting to see a different race uh, that all the aliens knew about. None of the humans knew what this was, but all the aliens knew about it. And as soon as they found out he was on board, they evacuated. They couldn't get off the station fast enough. 
And I think it's the only other race that we encounter besides the shadows that everyone's, oh my God, they're all powerful. We're out of here. It's, you know, you had the Vorlons and then now you've got this other race, the soul hunters come along and then later we see the shadows. But we hadn't seen another race that everybody was kind of afraid of before, before the soul hunters. Um, his rationale about the soul that it'll die if he doesn't preserve it was interesting. And then, uh, finding out later that he had sort of a fanatics perspective of it. He was a little uh, afraid of missing the important one, so he would, shall we say, intervene and take (laughs) take possession of the soul before they could actually leave on their own. That that was interesting. A little, what is the soul? And we get back to, you know, before that, you know, we've had other discussions later rather about you know the soul of a creature the soul of a being you know the lifespans and everything and just the soul hunters take on it you know we talk to them we learn from them we listen to them was kind of interesting i the the discussion about the soul that really fascinated me in this episode is that jms provides three different perspectives on it and never once commits to any of the explanations, which was wonderful. There's the scene in um, in the ISO lab where the soul hunters, as you say, describes what they do. They learn from them. Franklin, who makes his first appearance in this episode, stands there and chuckles and says, this is patent nonsense. Delenn mm-hmm. comes along and says, you're enslaving these souls that need to be released so they can be reborn into you know, the Mimbari race and you know when you take them we are diminished and the soul hunter says that's a that's a pretty fantasy and a clever lie Mm -hmm. so you've got three perspectives on that and who's right and i'm not saying that it needed to be explained but that to me is one of the the joys of this episode uh, that there are those three perspectives and there's no uh, you know, no commitment on the part of the writer to say this is how things are, and I and I really find that an attractive angle mm-hmm. on this. And it actually it actually leaves the door open even when we find out things later, because we do find out later that the the Mimbari feel that each generation has be, become diminished, and then we find out later yeah. that their greater souls have gone elsewhere. But then Franklin's come. Yeah, I'm not going to spoil stuff later. We'll get to that episode soon enough. Um, but then Franklin's comment, I thought it was interesting. It, it, I, di- I didn't pick up on it until I recently rewatched it. Franklin's comment actually has echoes on what he believes later on in the episode Believers. That I, I think, uh, generally speaking, this episode does a really great job of further establishing the Babylon 5 universe without being terribly um, exposition-laden. We find out more about the Earth-Minbari War. Uh, we are introduced to further deeper mysteries about the Earth-Minbari War uh, regarding the death of Dukat and the lens place in all this. And again, to sort of touch on possible spoiler material for those who are new to the the B5 universe, the scene where the soul hunter is extracting Delenn's soul and peers into the little crystal globe. I, I can get a glimpse now, he says, and he goes, you would do such a thing? Mm-hmm. And that was just 
a nice setup of further mysteries. And of course, Delenn's later comment to, to Sinclair, we were right about you. Yeah, just, it just sets up 20 more questions that take, <laughs> what, two more years to get answered? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But they're, they, they, it, it, they're worked in in such a manner that they're not... Uh, how, how do I want to put this? They're, they're, it's not like big neon signs going big mystery plot point. It's mm -hmm. just these lines of dialogues that get dropped in. And as a viewer, you sit there going, well, what does that mean? You know, and Sinclair even says, you know, after, after Delenn's in, in med lab recuperating, you know, we were right about you. And Franklin says, I wonder what she means. And Sinclair says, yeah, I'm going to ask her, but I doubt I'm going to get an answer. Mm hmm yeah, the, the, that's one of the great things I love about this series. Things happen, and you remember they happen, but you have no idea, none at all, if they have any significance until something happens, you know, six months, a year, two years, three years later. And then you go, oh, my goodness, he was setting that up. Yeah. Yeah, in, in contrast to the gathering that we discussed uh the two previous shows where they were setting things up, but it, it seemed really kind of heavy handed. This is a much more uh, gentle is not the right word, but integrated, I think is a better word. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to me, this is, this is the first classic Babylon five episode. I really love this episode when I first saw it, uh, you know, we're dealing with a, a new universe, as a science fiction television watcher, uh, but going back to it again many times as I have, I, I think that it holds up really well. The performances are strong. Uh, for me, this is one of those episodes where the action scenes are good action scenes without getting to that point of we've got 10 seconds to get there before the whole thing blows up kind of thing. You know, yeah, there's a deadline that Sinclair has to get to, you know, save Delenn's life, but there's, there's a sense of urgency without it being melodramatic. And, uh, I think that he, I don't know, we'll touch on this later, but I think that one of the problems I've had generally with Michael O'Hare's portrayal is that I don't think he is a great action hero and we can go into that later in this episode. I think he does a great job with that. You know, I think that the restraint that he generally brings to the Sinclair role comes through even in the action sequences. The the thing that I liked most about this episode, I didn't even realize what it was until maybe about, a, I guess about a week ago, a lot of the dialogue isn't overly long and flowery as it tends to get in some of the later episodes. It's very, very concise, compact. You, you get people say a lot with fewer words. Uh, the speech, right. the longer speeches don't come in until later. And I don't even think I realized that until about a week or so ago. No, you're right. And, and I didn't, didn't realize it either until you just said it. But yeah, you think back on it. Uh, it is very quick and to the point all the way down. Everybody says what they have to say and they're on to the next next scene and it's it's a very propulsive episode that way and the one thing that i didn't like about the episode and it's a minor point but again we touched on it last week uh the lack of any sort of clue as to who's standing at your door 
you know, the, the soul hunter escapes med lab. He knows that he's here for Delenn, a member of the gray council and Delenn's filling out a report. The doorbell rings and she says, come in <laughs> <laughs> and here comes the soul hunter. Uh, you know, again, somebody ought to be able to, to have something where you're able to look at it. Now I know at that point it maybe becomes a harder challenge to try to get the soul hunter to grab Delenn, but you know, that that's just kind of cheesy to, to do that. I'm not that's sure. That's my major nitpick with it. Yeah, I'm not sure that, uh, and that was the question I was going to ask you, what did you have, what problems did you have with this episode? I'm not sure he came there specifically to get Delenn. He was just trying to escape his brothers attacking him. But when he saw her and yeah. recognized her, he's like, oh, you'll do. <laughs> that's, right. That's no, the you're, feeling. you're right. That's yeah. the, you know, and, I didn't mean to, to make it sound otherwise. But, yeah. You know, he walks into a room and says, okay, I'm here for you. Let's go. No, I said the, the nitpicks that I had with it, uh, well, we didn't see it when this episode first aired, but you hear him complain that he was not able to get to Dukat to collect his soul. But later, when we see in the beginning, um, we see that soul hunter ships have appeared around the Membari flagship vessel and all of a sudden all the Membari start panicking going oh my god what are they here for but I guess I guess seeing this soul hunter setting up all this equipment to extract Delenn's soul made me wonder how do they capture the soul right when the person is dying it seems a little <coughs> inconsistent to me well, I'll, I'll, I'll argue they'll take devil's advocate on that one I, I think that Let's posit it this way. If the soul hunter is generally there to grab the soul at the point of death, for example, um, well, we'll use Dakota as an example. Had the Mimbari not gotten in the way, he'd be lying there dead and dying on the deck. And the soul is already, in a sense, liberated from the body. So imagine he's got the soul hunter equivalent of a butterfly net, just some small device. All he needs to do is grab the energy. Okay, and then encase it in the little globe or whatever. The difference is here with our soul hunter who's deranged. He shows up on the station. Well, he's trying to get the soul before the person's died. So he basically has to kill the host to get the soul. So maybe that's a, a much more arduous process. As he says, that he's got the lens strapped to the deck and, and, and bleeding her away, basically. You know, he says, don't discomfort yourself. It'll hurt the transference. So perhaps that's the difference. At this point, in trying to get the soul before it's ready to go, he has to go through a much more co complicated process to do that. So the, the that, piece That's of, my hand wave. <laughs> so the piece of equipment we see him using trying to extract the land soul is not what they normally use. They usually use something else because... They're taking a soul that's already departed the body before it's, you know, gone wherever. But in this case, he's trying to extract one from a soul, from a body that's still alive. Exactly. Okay. Right. I can accept that. I like that prop, by the way. I thought that was a really, really <laughs> neat looking device. I like it, it the had globes. that kind of mad scientist thing. I like the globes. They were kind of cool. Yeah. Okay. The You know, the other thing, since we touched on in the beginning, um, that was a whole fleet of soul hunter ships showing up there. You know, yes. that, that was one of the things I liked about that, that the, um, almost a premonition, the Mimbari see him coming. They realize all oh, something, something really, really bad is going to be happening here. Mm -hmm. And of course, something really, really bad does happen. 
you know, Ducat dies, the war begins. Um, Sinclair loses 24 hours out of his life. Delenn is there for some reason. Um, you know, what is one of the members of the Great Council doing playing at Ambassador? More mysteries to mm-hmm. unfold. Yeah. I also liked, I liked the, um, the idea that we're introduced to this race and the first person we see happens to be a madman. <laughs> and then the next whole hunter that comes through is, I guess you, you have to say more sane in that way, but, but I really liked that concept. Kind you know, of makes now your... our, our characters have to deal with, you know, who do you believe that we, you know, it's only the second guy we've contacted. Yeah, kind of, kind of makes you reevaluate first contact protocols, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it does. So, any other thoughts about Soul Hunter? Uh, other than intriguingly setting up the mystery of the Mimbari and what they're up to, not really. I think it's interesting. You know, we touched on this with Jeffrey. There's no uh, Vorlon in this episode. There's also neither Nar nor Centauri. Uh, you know, now that the series has has gotten the pick up for the first year, as it were, we get Midnight on the Firing Line, which uh, gives you the first glimpse of the Narn Centauri conflict. The second episode gives you insight into the history of Babylon 5 regarding the Earth Minbari War and uh, touching a bit on, on the Minbari culture. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to see the universe revealed in these little pieces. Yeah. It's also, it's also the first episode where uh, I think Garibaldi and Franklin meet. So yes. it's that's our our first glimpse into what becomes a you know damn powerful friendship down the line. Right. I like the scene in, in the Isolab when they're first going over the Soul Hunter, and um, Franklin is is listing off the the readings. You know, well, it's, you know, blood pressure's down, this, that, and the other, and Garibaldi standing going, well, that's good, right? Well, no, it could mean this. And, and when <laughs> Sinclair comes in and goes, how's he doing? Well, Doc says it's fifty fifty either way. <laughs> I thought that was really great character moments. Cool. And I also like Sinclair's, um, you get a deeper insight to his character. Uh, when he's interviewing the uh, soul hunter and he says, you know, personally, I don't believe you can do what you say you can do, but you've got all the aliens upset and I have no reason not to believe them. You know, I think that gives you the insight on the kind of uh, person he is and the leader that he is, mm-hmm. that he is, doesn't discount the thoughts and feelings of other people, even if he doesn't quite understand what's driving that, you know, he's willing to take at face value, you know, the reports that he's getting. And I think that's an interesting insight too. Mm -hmm. So anything else? Yeah, I'm going to add something. Okay. (laughs) You know, I mean, the idea of, uh, of being able to capture the souls and the importance and connection that all the alien races have, um, this early in to, to to establish that this early in the arc certainly comes back repeats several times through the story and is perhaps um, replayed several times by Delenn when she talks about we're all made of star stuff. Yeah. Yes. And maybe that's just that's just the connection that that uh, made, makes in retrospect as I listen to you guys discuss this I go yeah well you know we kind of we kind of get that that all the aliens are in fact connected and. And uh, and and the story would have worked had they called them star stuff collectors instead <laughs> mm-hmm. of uh, soul hunters. Yeah. Right. Right. And the other thing I think is important is Sinclair is not really the big shit you think he is because you know what I can't 
even begin to count the number of times I've lost 24 hours out of my life. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but how much of that involves a drink and how much of that involves attacking an enemy star cruiser that's five times larger than your own ship? Hey, hey, you say tomato, <laughs> I say tomato. <laughs> you say star fury, I say margarita. I'm not seeing a big difference between me and Sinclair right now. No, I, I, I see the point. <laughs> Don't argue with the Vorlons because you are crunchy and taste good with ketchup. <laughs> That's right. I know nobody ever comes back from Vorlon space when they go to, poking at them. <laughs> <laughs> well, they do, but it's usually they come back as like a cheese grater or a compact <laughs> printer or something like that. I mean, it's usually right. ugly. <laughs> cool. Well, I think we are done for tonight. What do you say? Well, I've got three emails that I'd like to read, and I know we've got a voicemail also that we want to touch on. Yes, we do. Okay, first email comes from Rick Jones, and this is specifically into our response to our discussion of the poisoning Kosh plot in The Gathering. And uh, he and I exchanged a couple emails, and, and this one I think kind of really gets to the heart of the, uh, the matter. Rick writes, assuming there's a physical body, which since we've seen Kosh 2 face through walls, is not a given then presumably the Vorlon equivalent of antibodies are trying to fight off the poison. I'd guess that Dr. Kyle was looking for places in the body where activity levels are either rising, meaning the body's producing something trying to stop it, or falling, meaning that something's shutting down the body. But since Kosh is a quasi-energy jellyfish, I got nothing that applies. But since Kyle's a whiz at xenobiology, I assume he knows what to look for when trying to treat a patient when you know doodly squat about their biology. I believe it was Shakespeare who said, if you're wondering how he eats and breathes and other science facts, then repeat to yourself it's just a show. I should really just relax. Cute. <laughs> <laughs> and, then he, and then he closed the whole thing. But yeah, there is a hole in your plot. Yeah, I, th I think, you know, Rick, Rick kind of hit all the uh, things that we were, um, were touching on in a much more succinct manner, perhaps. <laughs> Okay. Thank you, one? Rick. But I, I, I want to thank Rick. But I'm pretty sure that it it, it, uh, it may not have been Shakespeare. I think that might have been Buddha. <laughs> <laughs> I have another email here from Michael Tiernan, and I, this one is sort of aimed at you, Jeffrey. And see, Michael writes, "I thought of this while listening to Pat T's interview." Jeffrey shouldn't get off the hook telling slash asking the nearest actress to do the podcast is cheating. He owes you another guest. Uh, then he goes on to write, for the cast and crew, and this is he, he titled his email, Question to Ask. He says, for the cast and crew, now do you understand the statement, I am not Spock? <laughs> Jeffrey, you want to feel that one? <laughs> if, if he thinks for one minute that it was easy to get Pat Tallman to come to the telephone and do an interview... <laughs> I can't, you are so mistaken, friend. It is so much easier for me to get Boxleitner on the phone than it is to get Tallman on the phone. I hear she's difficult to work with. Uh, you have no idea. You have no idea. You have a comf comfortable couch, I hope, at home, Jeffrey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, the one thing that I, I thought of when I read this email, the statement, I am not Spock, um, the, 
I know we've only talked to three or four of the stars of the show here, um, but I really get the sense that it's a different era for actors in a show like a Babylon five, or even the later incarnations of star Trek um, that, you know, maybe they have to deal with some of those preconceptions, but you know, especially for the B five crew, what I'm hearing from them is that they enjoyed being on the show that they recognized they were involved in something special and that roles like Lita Alexander and Vircato and John Sheridan are once in a lifetime, once in a career kind of things and that they enjoy it. And that they're glad that it's made the impact on, on fans that people want to do podcasts, you know, 10 years after the fact. Oh, I think that's, that's uh, completely accurate Tim. that, you know, I, I don't think there was anybody there that, that didn't clearly understand um, that we were making something really good, something important. And, um, you know, the other thing was that we also kind of enjoyed the fact that we were underdogs. We knew that, that uh, the Trek was still in production and, and was doing their shows, uh, we thought, not as well and certainly spending a lot more money than we were. And um, and so there was a certain pride that comes with being an underdog sometimes. You know, you know that you're, mm-hmm. you're Avis number two, we try harder kind of stuff, you know. <laughs> And let's not forget that Leonard Nimoy did indeed write a book later on titled I Am Spock. (laughs) Yes, he did. (laughs) All right. One last email from Jim Carr. He writes, I know it's hard to prepare with mystery guests and such, but through four podcasts, it sounds like none of you have been reading the script books JMS is selling. There's a lot of material from JMS beside the scripts in there. Summer, you want to take that one? Uh. I read some of his comments about what's in what JMS has added to the script books, and we've already heard firsthand some details that uh, differ from what JMS put in the script books. I would love to get those script books, but right now my budget does not allow for it. Yeah, we're um, redoing the kitchen too, and I think that um, being able to prepare food tops spending $30 a month on uh, the books. Yeah. Now, now if there's any listeners out there who'd like to buy a set of the script books uh, specifically <laughs> for the Babylon podcast use, uh, we won't turn them down. Trust me. Uh, I think even just loaders, if you want to send it to us and let us riffle through them for a month and send them back, yeah. we could probably even deal with that. Yeah. I, 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 think, if JM, I think if JMS would just... Uh, cut us in for a piece of the action on the sale of those items, we would be happy to promote those. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say, Just hey, send us autographed copies. Yeah, autographed <laughs> copies for each of us, and we'll literally pimp the hell out of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, would, I would love nothing more. The Babylon 5 completist in me would definitely love to have those because I have all sorts of goodies, and those are just calling my name. But right now, <laughs> my budget's saying, no, no, sweetheart. Well, the other part of it is that, uh, you know, the script books, as as wonderful reading as I sh- I'm sure they are, um, that's also from JMS's perspective. And uh, as we've talked amongst ourselves, part of the purpose of doing the Babylon podcast is to get the other stories out there, the people 
who are also involved in the show. Mm-hmm. You know, making, as Jeff's pointed out, this show is you know, a show like this is such a collaborative effort. You know, JMS wrote great scripts and had great vision. There's no doubt about that. But it also needed um, Ron Thornton to and his crew to make the great visuals of the starships and Christopher Frankie doing the moving music and, uh, you know, people in Vorlon costumes stumbling around the sets to make everything all mysterious. Uh, and and you, one man can't do that. And, you know, there are more stories out there than, than just from that point of view. Mm-hmm. We have one more comment, uh, an audio submission sent in by, uh, who is this, Chris Patterson. Hi, Tim and Summer. This is Chris in Indianapolis. Regarding your issues with the plot of The Gathering, with Kosh being so easily fooled, I think you all were on the right track that it was all set up as a test for Sinclair. I think it might have also been crafted as a test of uh, other characters on B5 as well. Lita, if you uh, believe the Psychor book trilogy is considered canon, um, they had to know was coming aboard. In fact, I think they might have manipulated things to place her specifically on B5. Uh, and even Garibaldi to get a sense of his loyalties or security skills. This kind of matches up with later on when they test uh, Delenn and Sheridan with Sebastian. But remember, it wasn't just a test of one or the other, it was a test of both their loyalties. Why didn't they just send in Sebastian? I believe they construct such tests for uh, key figures in history all the time. It makes sense if you suppose that each test is handcrafted for the test subject, and only in certain cases are people like Sebastian used. I always enjoy listening to or reading interviews with Pat. She always seems to have such a genuine enthusiasm and affection for her time spent on Babylon 5. One thing I wish we could have heard her opinion on, though, is now that Rick, Biggs, and Andreas have passed, is there any hope that Lita's story in the telepath war can ever be filmed? Maybe it's still too soon to ask a question like that. Anyway, keep up the great work, guys. I listen every week. Thanks. Thanks, Chris. Great comments. Um, As far as his theory is... Chris's theory regarding uh, the test, um, it stands up just as well as any other theory that we've come up with, which is to say you can explain it away if you want, but I think somehow there's still something missing in the gathering, you know, that we have to really strive to come up with, with concepts to make it work. Just, I think kind of only points up some of the weaknesses in the story. I like to think of it as a, a running start, and that running is having people tripping through dirt over rocks and down hills till they get their feet, <laughs> till they get their footing. Fair enough. I think that's a good point too. <laughs> and uh, I think you could tell Lita's story, but you shouldn't. <laughs> well, I think that that adds to the intrigue and mystery of the character. I'll, I I can see your point there. Yeah. Okay. I think. Uh, and, w- and one last point for yeah. Chris: the um, Psychor trilogy is considered canon. Yes, it is. Yes. Well, one of these days we'll have to get to the books, the ones that uh, JMS does consider canon, and plow through those. Hopefully, c- kind of quickly. But yeah, uh, yeah this is going to be an extra long show, so we're going to wrap it up now. Uh, Very good. That'll do it. You can contact us at two zero six three three eight. Two two five nine. That's two zero six three three eight twenty two fifty nine. The year the great war came upon us all. Or also send us an email at babylonpodcast at gmail dot com. That'll do it for us this week. We will see you on the other side of the gate.